Good afternoon and welcome to CSIS. I'm John Alterman. I'm the Senior Vice President, the Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and the Director of the Middle East Program. I'm here to do three things today. First is to welcome you all here. Thank you for coming to the rollout of Faith in the Balance, a, a new publication uh, that we're, we're releasing today. Second, I want to thank the Luce Foundation for supporting this very important work. And third, I want to welcome back two very old friends. Um, Hi Malka came to CSIS in 2005, in January, became the Deputy Director of the Middle East Program in November 2007, and just left in August. And he spent all of those years at my side trying to make sense of the Middle East. I think we made a little bit of sense of the Middle East. Uh, he's now a Vice President at the Metropolitan Group, a public policy advisory firm, and I'm really delighted to welcome him back. He's the editor of this volume. And Jennifer Cook had a remarkable 18-year career at CSS. She was here when I got here, and she was the master of all kinds of very difficult and diverse developments in Africa in the, the opening decades of this century. She's now the director of the Institute for African Studies at the Elliott School at George Washington University. So I am really delighted to welcome my old friends back, and I'm gonna turn it over to Chaim, who will introduce the study and introduce the panel. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. It's great to be back at CSIS, my old stomping ground, and wonderful to see uh, longtime friends and colleagues. I feel very fortunate to have worked on this project with so many great people and uh, edit the volume Faith in the Balance, Regulating Religious Affairs in Africa. This is the culmination of a two-year study supported by the Luce Foundation that took us to Tunisia, Morocco, Nigeria, Kenya, and Burkina Faso to try to understand how and why states intervene in religious affairs and how states try to regulate religious affairs and the consequences and the implications of state intervention in the religious landscape. So before I introduce our stellar lineup um, and get into the discussion, I want to acknowledge a couple of people that are here in the, um, in the audience, two people that uh, were instrumental in helping me complete this project. The first was Hannah Porter, who was a research partner on this project. She fact-checked the entire manuscript. She edited and provided feedback on most of the manuscript and did a lot of excellent research on the Morocco and Tunisia chapters. So thank you, Hannah. The other person is Amber Adderidge, who managed every detail and every aspect of this project, ensuring that we met deadlines or when we missed deadlines, we caught up uh, and eventually made those deadlines. Amber also provided a lot of feedback and guidance and insight into this volume. So I'm, I'm very grateful to both of you. Thank you. So before I introduce our panelists, I just want to say a few remarks to frame the project. I mean, the sheer size of Africa with more than 1.2 billion people, more than 50 countries, hundreds of languages and ethnic groups, makes trying to think through this kind of a study that tries to look at religious regulation in Africa, it makes it quite challenging. And the case studies that we chose, Morocco, Tunisia, Nigeria, Kenya, and Burkina Faso, all have very different political structures. They all have very different approaches to religion and all have different strategies about how to engage in, in religious issues. 
Morocco, for example, is a monarchy with a long tradition of developing a very clear Moroccan Islamic narrative and doctrine which is closely linked to the power structure of the country. Nigeria, which I learned a lot about from, from, this, uh, from working on this project, has a federal structure that attempts to balance national policies with local policies and has a legacy of traditional religious figures that also have political influence and power. Burkina Faso has a history of non-intervention by the state in religious affairs and has a history of uh, relative tolerance and stability, which has been tested over the last few years by the rise of violent militant movements that have challenged the state. So despite this diversity, despite the uniqueness of each case, we did find a number of common themes and a few common takeaways that I want to outline briefly. The first is that religion is a fundamental part of personal, social, and national identity in Africa, which is not static. It's constantly changing, it's constantly evolving, and both the states and opposition groups and civil society movements have a long history of co-opting and using religious symbols for their own objectives. The second is that the religious landscape in each country is highly fragmentized between different denominations, different movements, different civil society organizations, and this diversity also continues to evolve. The third takeaway is that there's an important role for states in managing religious affairs. And, and one can debate this, but we found that it was important for, for states to have some kind of policy towards religion and religious institutions and religious affairs. But there are also risks and consequences of state intervention in the religious field. Too much intervention by the state can undermine the very objectives that the state is trying to accomplish and delegitimize some of the institutions and religious figures that they're trying to work with. And not enough state intervention can create a vacuum that can potentially be filled by violent narratives or organizations and movements that use religion and manipulate religion for their own objectives. So each state has to find the right balance and the right mix for that equilibrium of, of intervening in religious affairs. The fourth takeaway, which I think is really critical, is that while state intervention in the religious sphere is connected to faith and doctrine and theology and institutions, and we've talked a lot about that in this study, the reality is that state intervention in religious affairs is essentially a political act meant to fulfill and meet political objectives of the state or the government. It's not about promoting a particular doctrine or a particular theology. It's really <laughs> boiling down to political actions by states. And then finally, most governments have now made a connection and a link between regulating religious affairs and countering violent extremism, CVE, or preventing violent extremism, the notion that narratives can be used to undermine the violent narratives that jihadi Salafi or other religious movements or political movements that claim religious authority are trying to use for their own benefit. So we acknowledge that religiously motivated violence is a legitimate concern for some states, but religiously inspired violence is not the primary threat 
to states and society in Africa. And we found that there's a risk of over-securitization when governments try to use religion as a tool to um, intervene in, in, um, in the religious landscape. And that over-securitization often leads to abuses by the security forces or the state that actually reinforce the very conditions that drive violent extremism. So the conditions that create violent extremism, including social marginalization, unemployment, indignity, humiliation, hopelessness, those are a far greater threat to states and societies in Africa than religiously inspired violence. And as long as those conditions exist, they will motivate people to use religion for political objectives and claim religious legitimacy to pursue their violent uh, objectives. So that's the framework that, that I want to frame this discussion in. I want to introduce each of our panelists briefly, and then I will moderate a discussion with them, and then I'll turn it over to take questions from the audience. So uh, first, to my left, is Intisar Fakir, a fellow at Carnegie's Middle East program, and the chief editor of SADA. Uh, if you haven't been reading it, you should. It's a, an excellent... Um, an excellent newsletter that touches on um, Middle East and North African issues and provides a lot of insight into what's going on in the region. Intisar's research focuses on political security and economic change in North African countries. In particular, she examines political Islam, local governance, social mobilization, and foreign policy. Previously, she was the managing editor of the Arab Reform Bulletin, and she served as a special assistant to the Vice President for Strategy and Policy at the National Endowment for Democracy, where she was working on implementing democracy and education assistance uh, throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, we have Bartholomew Basemo. Father, Bartholom uh, Father Bartholomew is a policy analyst and scholar with the Africa Faith and Justice Network, a coalition that advocates for responsible US relations with Africa. He's also a member of the Society of the Missionaries of Africa. He spent many years uh, in Eastern Africa, primarily studying and engaging with youth development activities and interfaith dialogue. He studied at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa. He studied in Nairobi, Kenya, and at the Higher Institute of Philosophy in Burkina Faso. He holds a master's degree in peace studies and international relations and a bachelor's studies of th sacred theology. And I believe you're now working on your PhD as well. So, uh, next is uh, Mvembe Dizolel, who is a writer, foreign policy analyst, independent journalist, and a lecturer in African studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He is also a non-resident fellow, uh, associate fellow here at the CSIS Africa program. He previously served as a fellow at Stanford University's Hoover's Institution, and he is the author of a forthcoming book, Mobutu, The Rise and Fall of the Leopard King, which will be published by Random House. We look forward to that. Uh, he's worked in uh, many different capacities in Africa, including in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he was an election monitor, a documentary filmmaker, and an independent reporter embedded with UN peacekeepers. He has a MBA and MPP from the University of Chicago and is a veteran of the US Marine Corps. So, welcome. Thank you. And Jennifer Cook, my old colleague. Wonderful to see you again. Jennifer is the director of the Institute for African Studies at George Washington's Elliott School of International Affairs. 
as we know, before joining the Elliott School. She was the director of the Africa program here at CSIS, where she was working on um, political, security, and economic analysis of Africa. You've traveled widely. You've published many reports. And it's wonderful to have you back here at CSIS and on this panel. Thank you. So Father Bartholomew, let's start with you. For governments that do try to regulate or manage religious affairs, finding that right balance can be tricky. And they have a lot of different, uh, different issues that they have to juggle and, and sort of think about as they enter the religious field. Too much intervention can undermine their objectives. Too much can create conflict. From your perspective, how do you think governments should approach finding that equilibrium and balance when they engage in religious affairs? Um, this is a very good and interesting conversation. Um, religion, as you, you said, is an important institution in Africa. Uh, it frames how people go about their lives, their values, their worldview. And when a government intervenes in that sacred space, it has to really bring all the stakeholders to bear on what really touches their lives. So the government cannot uh, go ahead and you know, define policies without engaging that dialogue with all the stakeholders. And not intervening, not clearly putting marks where each group should be can also be a risk. But at the same time, the government has to be able to have a broad-based you know, conversation so that at the end of the day, the output is something that people can buy into, not something that is top-down, but something from within. So that at the end of the day, people may feel that this is part of what we want for society. And when we talk about Africa, which is a very complex continent, uh, where religion is really very strong, government should be able to, of course, we have three major I would say uh, traditions. We have, you know, traditional African uh, religions. We have uh, Islam, and then we have Christianity. And I think um, coming to that for me personally, government should really carefully trade on that issue to bring all the stakeholders together. This is what we face as a society. Then, how can we find a solution together? I believe that. Uh, when it comes to groups that create problem in most African countries, they are small groups. But the larger majority, the large group, tend to look at religion as something that can positively contribute to society. So for me, to have a broad-based discussion about on some of those issues with all the different stakeholders is key to peace and security across the continent. So Jennifer, let me ask you, you know, just jumping off that point, um, Father Bartholomew was talking about bringing stakeholders together and having more of an inclusive dialogue with different religious groups. In the countries that you're following closely and that you've worked on, do you think that kind of dialogue is happening? Are governments reaching out to different parts of civil society and involving more grassroots organizations in, in their dialogue about religious affairs? I, I think it, it obviously varies a great deal. I mean, one of the challenges is um, 
democratization and kind of political liberalization has meant a real fragmentation of civil society. It's also in many cases meant a fragmentation of religious orders. Um, so that there are, it's no longer just going to the, the archbishop and the, you know, the, the equivalent in, 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 in well, there isn't really an equivalent in Islam, but kind of the, the figure, the leading figure, an emir or the sultan. Um, there's a, it's a much, much more fragmented landscape. And um, there are at the extreme edges of um, the two ma major religions, um, elements that do not want to participate in that dialogue. And so I think that has been the challenge um, uh, in Nigeria, where the Christian uh, Association of Nigeria, for example, does not want to participate in some of the interreligious dialogue uh, uh, processes because it, it views some of the other players uh, uh, as um, not legitimate. Um, it's, it's also more difficult because in addition to kind of that fragmentation and increasing competition among religious orders and within religious orders, so intra-Salafi uh, competition, intra-Muslim competition, even in kind of the, the long established brotherhoods in um, Senegal, you see kind of a fracturing um, uh, so that as civil society and religious orders have become more fractured, um, there's just so many more stakeholders to, to consult. And then you, you overlay on top of that the rise, as you mentioned at the outset, of kind of violence in the name of, uh, of, of, of religion um, that makes that kind of participatory dialogue all the more difficult. I do think there still tends to be, uh, uh, there is still a tendency for governments to go to kind of the go-to traditional leaders, the emirs, the, the, the sultan, the, the, the uh, uh, what's in, in Senegal? What is the word I'm looking for? Or kind of the Muslim Association and the Christian Association, and that leaves out that whole expanse of kind of the the competitive religious, you know, smaller imams or, or pastors um, that are really much harder to capture in any kind of dialogue. So that's a lengthy, um, lengthy response, but no, but, I a, don't but see an it important happening. one as well. Movember, can I ask you just touching on that fragmentation and the fact that there are certain groups that increasingly don't want to engage with the state for whatever reason. How, how do states navigate that? I mean, what do you do with those, state, with those, with those movements that are on the outskirts uh, that don't want to be part of any kind of state dialogue? Thanks. I, I think there is a um, couple of things I want to touch on before I come to that, though, is the nature of the regulation of the religion itself. It's history. So in Islam, in countries that are mostly Muslim, there's a longer tradition that predates maybe the colonial years. But in other parts of Africa, the colonial state, the colonial administration set that regulation, the framework of that regulation to control, primarily. And so that led in many regions to one church, like the Catholic Church, which is different from the other churches. So if you're in Central Africa and other places, it's very, it's very unique because the Catholic Church has a state, the Holy See. So even when you engage the local community of Catholics, you have to contend not only with the local church, i.e. the archbishop or the cardinal, and then you have to contend with the nuncio, the apostolic nuncio, 
the nunciatory is typically there, and then the Vatican. And then also the Catholic Church itself, as big as it is, so the various layers, every single bishop is a prince unto himself. So who do you engage with when you engage the Catholic Church, for instance? Do you engage the cardinal who's sitting in the capital often? Or do you engage the bishop, the monsignor of whatever diocese, who want nothing to do with the, with the cardinal who just decided? So there's that fragmentation just within that big mammoth known as the Catholic Church, which is very important and very powerful in different contexts. In DRC, the Catholic Church holds weight against the, the government. They have a lot to say in whichever, whatever happens in the country. Uh, in other countries, the power is diluted. But then you also have the other Christian churches. This is where the fragmentation comes in. The Protestant tradition, at least in a lot of African countries, is not a tradition to confront the state. It's been a tradition to be outside. The way they look at it, I don't know if it's uh, Weberian or not, but they tend to work with the state. Uh, either because they're not necessarily contributing a lot to the provision of social services, so they don't always feel the weight. And then you have the different waves that come to the potency. So the Pentecostal, they're speaking in tongues. The um, kind of get rich in the name of God movement. You know, all that stuff then dilute the entire force. So a lot of them do not want to be engaged necessarily. Uh, and then you have kind of another layer when you go to places like Tanzania. With the rise of whatever hap is happening there, I don't know what we want to call it, if it's the rise of authoritarian, whatever it is. Um, and that fits a little more into this, this dialogue, this discourse of CVEs. So if you have Zanzibar, and then you have the mainland, and you have Christian, you have Muslims, and you have a state that wants to control more, how does the state negotiate the interfaith council? Does it accept everyone as at par? Or does it exclude certain groups, even Islamic groups, that they decide that are asking too many questions? But those questions are typically questions that deal with the social contract. The state is not providing what you need to do. But then also you have the international pressures from the West, from other countries, insisting that the CVE issue is a problem. But those countries don't want to deal with that problem within that construct. Because if you talk about country and you say you have a CVE problem, it has other ramifications. Nobody wants to invest in that country. But often those problems were there before you define them as a CVE problem. So those are some of the pressures I think that we also need to, to frame in our discussion. Antisar, let me ask you, um, let's look northward towards uh, the Maghreb where you've done a lot of your work. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between some of the countries in North Africa uh, those that do have a clear narrative and a clear strategy to manage religious affairs and those that don't have a clear strategy or a clear narrative and, and the differences in, and the consequences of, of, of having or not having a narrative and strategy? Sure. Um, I think just echoing some of your opening remarks, I think one of the key, in looking at what each one of these countries are doing, I think one of the key points that the book makes is really this dual challenge of sort of um, figuring out what the right degree of intervention is. Too much intervention tends to discredit certain actors, and too little intervention creates a vacuum where more um, radical and, and or violent voices can essentially um, thrive. And so I would also argue that too much intervention also creates a vacuum where that um, 
where basically state institutions or state religious institutions and religious uh, leadership becomes discredited and is not able to provide the kind of leadership that the governments have envisioned for it. So looking at all of these um, countries, they, they all, as you mentioned, they all have a history, a long history of state control, um, of religion, you know, Morocco, um, as the book does a really good job of laying out, this is a monarchy, they've, they've always controlled state religion, um, state religious institutions, the king's authority as Amir al-Mu'minin, commander of the faithful, is accepted. In, and in Tunisia, the, the, the sort of, the layout is a little bit different. It's a country where control of state institutions has largely been limited to suppressing religion and marginalizing um, uh, state institutions. In Algeria, there's also a lot of state control of religion, uh, control of religion in uh, how it's taught in schools, how it's practiced in mosques, and so forth. But each one of these countries is, is uh, grappling with a different set of challenges when you look at how they've approached their, their control of, of religion. Um, in Morocco, there is sort of a, a dual challenge, which I, I think also applies to some of the countries that have a heavier hand in controlling the environment, which is you know, you're, you're essentially saddling citizens with too, too much control of every aspect of their lives. And that control is increasingly part of a lopsided equation where there's all these re restrictions, but they're not get, getting anything from the state sort of in return, you know? The state cracks down on um, civil liberties, the, the, there is not a lot of reforms that can improve people's lives and so forth. In Tunisia, you have a slightly different, so also a bit of a dual challenge, the way I see it, that the state has to overcome, which is that um, on the one hand, there is how do they claim, how do they reclaim control over this vacuum that has been created through years of neglect, but also, um, you know, how do you try to battle these elements that have had so long to entrench themselves in this space? So far, the direction that Tunisia has chosen is a little bit more, um, as you mentioned in the book, uh, you know, um, law enforcement and security heavy, which I think reflects this uh, understanding that maybe the issue is not so much one of religion or doctrine, but or even a question of identity or um, you know social or, or political cohesion, and it's rather a question of security. And I think that, I mean, that's on the one hand easier to address than addressing all of the other issues, but it also leaves the question of, you know, vacuum still being there, who claims religious authority in the country. Which is a big issue in every country in terms of religious authority and, and how um, for religious figures and institutions that work too closely with the state run the risk of being undermined and, and um, being de delegitimized. Father Bartholomew, have, have you seen that happen in, in any of the, um, the countries that you've studied in or, or worked in? And what are, what are the risks that religious institutions and organizations run when they engage too closely with the state? Um, to start with, I would say there is no problem of working with a state if the state has at heart the good of its people. And if a state goes against really the well-being of its people, a religious group that works with that state will run into trouble, that's clear. And I think in every single, I mean, I travel across Africa, I myself am from Burkina Faso, I live and work in East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, 
vita of Uganda, where, from my perspective, every single religious group has channels of communication. And I just want to address the issue that my colleague just talked about, about, for instance, the Catholic Church has channels of discussion. It's a very structured body. It's very easy to be able to engage them. Even Muslim communities, they have channels of communication. You can engage them. And when you take the example of Burkina Faso, where religion is like palaver type you know, environment, where people sit and talk and exchange, there is religious harmony. In that context, there is no need of the state coming in and start making laws. Um, we have a, an African proverb that says, never allow an animal that can swallow you, lick you. <laughs> so when you, religion is so strong that when you engage, you know, stakeholders of religion, you really have to be careful. What is your end game? Of course, we know international relation that every single state is after maximization of power. We want to have more power. But at the end of the day, where religion happens to really inform everything that a state you know, does, society, cohesion in a country, for me, the best way. People understand, for instance, the northern part of Burkina now is into because of what has happened, there are pockets of you know, areas where those groups have been you know, attacking people, or northern part of Kenya. If you really want to address that issue, you can use the channels within the same group, let's say Muslims, Catholics, to be able to reach out to them. You will not have maybe all of them to agree, but at the end of the day, internal measures of engagement are the best in the long run. Because you use too much power, it might backfire on you. You don't use enough, it has also consequences. So for me, the best way forward as you know, looking at how religion have been really engaging its members across Africa with changes that are taking place, I will still encourage governments. There are areas where you may need, let's say, we talk about Somalia, northern part of Mali, the whole Sahel belt. We are also to understand that there are historical grievances that are not directly related to religion. So we should not package this problem only under the umbrella of religion. If there are political issues, we need to address them. But of course, those grievances can find a locus in religion, which may not necessarily be religion. So bringing all those stakeholders to discuss and find the best way forward for me will be the first stage of engaging them. If they earmark the issues that we need to address, then a state can move forward. Because if the messaging is not clear, if people at the end of the day find that this government is against us, it's difficult. Because these are deep-seated beliefs. When you touch them, this is a lion that you are attacking. So it's always careful that, to be careful when governments engage. It is right that we need to clarify hate speech, 
We should never allow people to preach against each other. We should be able to engage communities. This is not what we want. This is not what, as a country, we want to move forward. So how do we address it? And when a government moves clearly to state something, at least at the basis of it, there is understanding. So that the movement is not accepted by everybody, but at least it is understood. Because when we look at most countries right now, many people are educated, they understand the stakes. And they know that we cannot continue allowing people who have, have been using hate speech for whichever reason to be able to continue doing it. So my experience of Tanzania where I've lived uh, has been a peaceful country for many years. I don't know the dynamics of politics now, but it's a country that has a great sense of community living, Nigeria, uh, Kenya and many other countries across Africa. So in conclusion, I would say it is good to engage religious leaders, not in times of hardship. It should be a continual process. In peace, hardship, this channel of discussion should be open so that people understand there is, this government is there for us and we should be able to help the government to implement, you know, because development, many other issues. So for me, it is the best way to be able to solve the religious problem across Africa. So I heard you talking about ongoing engagement, but also earlier uh, in your remarks talking about finding balance yeah. um, in terms of when governments intervene in religious space. Mavemba, I want to turn it over to you and ask you about that balance, in particular as it relates to CVE policies or counterterrorism policies that are going on in many of these countries. Have you seen examples of countries that have actually found uh, a, a practical balance? Um, and can you give, you give us an example of a country that maybe has found uh, a balance and maybe a country that you've been looking at where the balance is completely um, out, of, uh, out of order? Well, things have changed quite a bit in all countries. <laughs> that's, that's part of the challenge. It's always about, I mean, the discourse is mutating quite a bit. We talk a lot about CVE. I mean, part of, I want to link a little bit on this discourse. Because part of the challenge with the discourse is the definition. Who's defining it through which prism? The issues that we've come to call a CVE, or the sources or the drivers of those issues, have still been there. They've been there for a long time. They've just taken a different form in the expression. So as the West, for instance, when the West engage this thing, that's a reality, a reality that we seem to forget, right? Either because uh, groups follow the money, because that's where the funding is, so we have to fuel this course, um, or we believe that the state is the innocent character here, and we're going to address the mosques, we're going to address the, uh, the pray places of prayer, because that's where the, uh, the negative discourse is coming from, where that's where the hate speech, that's where the anger is. But often we don't put enough pressure on the government to leave the part of the bargain. Because the government can also, is also mutated in the way they address people. So government easily lash onto this discourse because just like NGOs and other groups follow the money, uh, government also follow the money. What do the French want? What do the, the Americans want? You start tailoring your entire approach to your own citizens based on that. All of a sudden, the, card, the cardinal becomes the bad guy 
the imam becomes the bad guy because he's also following the money from the Wahhabi or the Salafis and other things. So there's this kind of rush to the funding, which is a problem. But to go, out, who's managed that well? It's always very difficult to judge those issues because unless you are part of those communities, you don't get it. So for those of us from outside, we'll say Morocco is a good place. Yeah, because Islamists have been co-opted into a government and all kinds of things. Look, that's from the outside. Right? When you talk to Moroccans, Morocco, Moroccans have a totally different way of reading that situation. But the rest of us who study Africa inside that part of the world will say, yeah, they don't have a lot of the crisis. They've managed well since if you go back to the bombings in Casablanca and those days, Morocco remains very calm. But they still have the unbubbling. So do we say they've done it well? I don't know. Uh, the extreme of that would be the Central African Republic, where, of course, the absence of the state literally created the space for the uh, Christian, the Muslim, to go at each other. Again, issues that had been there for a long time, but were not addressed. So the absence of the state just gave carte blanche to whoever want to be creative and manipulate that. So it's, it's very hard to say who's found the balance. Is the fact that in country X, the church is not as active in challenging the powers, meaning the state power, does that mean they find the balance? Or does it mean part of the community is doing its job? So I think it's very hard to answer that question. Hopefully, this background helps a little bit. It does. And I mean, one of the themes that keeps coming out is this idea of change and evolution. Um, Jennifer, I want to ask you about the impact of social media on some of these debates, talking about change uh, and evolution. How has social media affected the religious landscape in some of the countries that you're following? How has it affected the way governments promote their message um, and how other religious movements and, and civil society organizations are engaging both their followers and, and uh, beyond? Um. Yes, if I could just maybe say something on the last question as well, just sure. to take the liberty in Feel terms free. of the balance. I mean, I've looked at Burkina Faso, which I think is a really interesting case of a, of a, a, a government that's really grappling with how to step into that space. Uh, decades under the authoritarian rule of Blaise Compaore, you know, very tolerant, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethnic and religious tolerance and coexistence. Um, but with the departure of Campore and the upsurge and the fractioning of civil society and the empowerment of civil society, there are more demands from Muslim communities, for example, and Muslim leaders who say we're not enough represented in official uh, architectures, um, from Christians. And on, overlaid on top of that, you have this worsening uh, security situation on the peripheries in, in terms of um, the violent extremist groups. Um, the government is very hesitant to step into the religious space. That's really an example of a, of a, of a country that's trying to remain out of it um, and kind of has adopted the principle, do no harm. But it's coming under increasing pressure to do so, partly because of these demands from you know, moderate voices within the religious community from Muslims who say, look, the, the Christians get three because they get one for the Catholics, one for the Protestants, one for the Pentecostals, and we only get two from the Muslim community even if we're the majority. That kind of uh, balance within the government. But also you have groups who are actively trying to drive a, a, a religious divide, and where is the government in kind of framing the dialogue on that? 
even if it's just the, the for Burkina absent, even the jihadist uh, violent extremist threat, the question of kind of social cohesion in, in Burkina, the government needs to address that somehow, and religion is a part of that. One aspect of that that I think would be really interesting to look at across uh, different countries is the education system, because that from time immemorial, from colonial days and so forth, tends to be a battleground in which a lot of these sensitivities play out. And you've seen it in northern Nigeria and Boko Haram, um, but you're seeing it in, in Burkina. And Burkina Faso has really relinquished that space to civil society groups to, to take care of it. But civil society groups aren't really equipped to deal with an education system, a bifurcated education system, or a system of uh, almajaris that don't have any formal connection. So, I mean, they're getting pressure from both sides. And some people, you talked about the securitization of religion. You don't want to religionize security issues either. And you know, the, the problems on the periphery largely are understood as a development and a marginalization problem, not a religious problem. And if the government were to step in, does it kind of reinforce this religious prism through which we see it? So that's, that's one side, I think, where they're, they're hesitating and perhaps not enough. On the, on the flip side, and I just bring one case up for Nigeria, is um, the brutal crackdown on Shia Muslims in northern Nigeria, who, who led a, a, uh, their annual procession in 2015, uh, ran into a convoy of military folks, neither would give way. There were uh, a couple of people killed. The military came back that night, raised the mosque, killed hundreds of Shia, uh, took, uh, took the heads of, of, the, of, the, of the movement um, uh, a prisoner, and he was gravely wounded, Zakzaki. And you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the very f further extreme of that. And you've seen similar in Angola, for example. That's my answer to the last question. <laughs> Can I add one thing? Uh, yeah. Please. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Both of you, please. And I think that's part of the challenge because as this space is mutating and changing, the state has changed quite a bit. And the state has no change for the better in most cases. So we're still looking to the state as kind of the beacon to provide the guidance into these things. So that's just something I think is very important. If the state is going to regulate that space and the state is not funding education, why should the people in the religious community listen to the government? Yeah, um, I just wanted to add something to what uh, Jennifer said, um, with specific reference to Burkina Faso about you know how Muslim and Christians have been living together. I mean, it has been known as a peaceful country, and even. In October 2016, uh, Pope Francis invited the president and all the religious leaders, traditional um, people from the Catholic faith and also Muslim, to Rome, to share their best secret. Why is it that you're able to live together peacefully? What is your secret? And all of them went. And I think, from my perspective, the problem in Burkina Faso is not a problem of religion. Uh, there are people who have been disenfranchised, the northern part, the Fulani, the Tuareg, and this goes back to colonization. And these are people who are, they are on the fringe. You cannot, of course, they create security problem for the, you know, for the country, but at the end of the day, that's not 
the elephant in the room. Um, it's a poor country that struggles to, you know, you know, improve the lives of its people. Uh, you have education, and there are many layers of problems that, you know, not only Burkina Faso, but the Sahel Belt faces. And when you want to address such issues, um, of course, in Mali, what happened, we should also not lose sight of what happened in Libya, and which somehow gave the opportunity to many people to get weapons, and then they came down. This is another major issue that we never address. And in Mali, that's one of the issues, and in Burkina Faso, and then in Niger. If these people have been able to live together for many centuries peacefully, why this time they are not able to do it? And I will still go back to traditional measures of conflict resolution, where the st states have to really tap into that. This is traditional, this is something people understand, they relate to, they're able to see themselves in it, and I think that engagement should not only be at the level of one state in the sub-region. How to bring those communities together to think and see, why is it that we are getting this problem? If it is a political problem, then we should look for a political solution. If it is a social problem that we can address, then we need to bring all the stakeholders of society to discuss. Otherwise, if we allow the situation to continue, it's going to get rotten and it will be difficult to solve it. So then, as a state thinks forward about how to regulate, we should see where we have the problems. Let's say, for the curriculum, we may be able to bring into the system, you know, values of Islam, of Christianity, traditional religion, another important piece that we need to bring on board uh, because in Africa, especially South Saharan Africa, traditional religions are still very important. And we cannot do a meaningful conversation without bringing those people on board. So I think that layer is not yet well furnished. We have really to come to that level to be able to, to pinpoint these are the issues we face. And then now, as a state, what can we do? And past that level, we'll be able to really regulate and be able to bring people to accept. Because even when we take, I mean, just quickly, when you talk about the empirical you know, criteria of a state is, of course, territorial, uh, a territory recognition. But the most important thing I see personally is internal recognition. There are many states where people don't feel a sense of belonging because they've been pushed aside. And for me, the northern part of Nigeria, partly Niger, Burkina Faso, northern part of Mali, we have those pockets where people have those grievances. And states need to address that for peace to, to be able to, to come back. Thank you. Intisar, did you want to address that? I wanted to come in on um, Morocco and just sort of echo some of, the, um, some of the thoughts that you had highlighted in your book. I think the question to me um, of success is very much tied to what is it in the first place that the state is hoping to achieve here. 
And I think for Morocco, I mean, just to kind of step back a little bit, it's important to remember that in most cases, these are very predatory states that view controlling every aspect of society as very important to their continued survival. For Morocco particularly, I think this is the, the way that it has sought to kind of, of course, it's ongoing uh, religious authority and presence, but in recent years, the way that it has sort of sought to reassert its religious um, leadership and authority is very much tied to political calculations. In the early 2000s, if you look at the sort of range of challenges that the monarchy faces, they're all political. There's not a lot of fragmentation or contestation happening at the religious um, level. So if you look at the range of uh, challenges, they're all political. In the early 2000s, as a new mon monarch, the king very much wanted to consolidate his control over politics. Um, of course, there's the pressure of addressing, countering violent extremism. I think for Morocco, that very much became uh, more acute after the 2003 Casablanca bombings. But then in 2011, it was all about you know, ensuring that there were not a lot of challenges to the monarchy's political power. And some of that was done through reinforcing this religious sort of this religious authority. And, and what's interesting to me, and I think what's, what I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is how Morocco has, has very much tried to sort of embrace and project that role outside of its borders as part of the monarchy's push towards Africa. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, how is that perceived in, in, in local communities? Is that seen as part of a, any kind of legitimate leadership? And do states encourage that kind of leadership? Or maybe we can put a different spin on it um, before, you know, just one last comment before we turn it over to the, to the audience. How are states learning from the experiences of other states in terms of, are they looking, are they watching, are they trying to gather best practices, if you will, in terms of lessons learned from how to engage for, for different purposes and objectives? Anyone wanna, Jennifer? Well, just one critique on the, particularly on the Moroccan uh, case where kind of looking towards kind of uh, uh, imams coming to train fellow imams on kind of a more peaceful, tolerant version of what, of what have you. I think there's pushback from many in Mali saying, um, you know, we don't, we don't want people to come with doctrine. I mean, we want kind of a Republican Islam, um, something that reinforces, you know, it doesn't work to come in and bring a particular doctrine, rather maybe principles of working within a, a, a kind of a Republican state. Um, you know, I think, uh, I'm not sure if states are learning from each other, but I mean, it seems that all of them are falling into some of the same traps. I don't know if they, uh, in terms of, as you said, kind of trying to securitize the issue or religionize the security issue. Um, and you know, for, for all the potential dialogue and stakeholder meetings and regulations and, and so forth that you can do, just a couple of acts of egregious abuses by the military can you know, can wipe out any progress you make on that. And I don't know that any, any state has really learned that and internalized that yet. I think one thing that, that is, that's working for Morocco, at least seen from the outside, and this, I think in Africa, there is hunger to see something that works, you know, among Africans themselves. Forget the donors for a while, but Africans themselves want to have some good story to tell. So I think Morocco is a country from the outside, it looks like they're doing a lot of good stuff. 
right? They've come back to the AU. They are consolidating the relationship with various African countries, rural Morocco. So there's this kind of sense like, oh, yeah, in Morocco. So people always look to places like that. Now, how it's perceived in different communities, I think the example that um, uh, Jennifer gave. Like we have our own traditions, right. don't try, try. But we also have to remember that there are long-standing historical ties between different Sufi brotherhoods in Morocco and in Northern Africa with large followings in, uh, in Western Africa and Senegal and other countries. The Tijaniya Brotherhood, for example, which is one of the largest in West Africa, is sort of centered and headquartered in, in, in Fez, Morocco. So there are these historic cultural, yeah. religious links that I think are very important. Senegal is an, another example that is known to be, it's been peaceful, peaceful. but Senegal does not project that saw in the way that Morocco does. So, so it's a different type of. Okay, the audience has been very, uh, very patient. I wanna uh, take some questions. Please wait for the microphone um, and ask your question of one of the panelists. Yes, right here in the front, please. Hi, Andy Loomis, uh, the National Intelligence Council. I'm curious, uh, two quick questions. One is differences that you see between ur uh, urban and rural uh, in terms of patterns of state intervention and, and uh, the role of, of how those patterns have, have played out. And second, if you can look forward 15 years or so, what are the kind of trends that we're seeing in terms of, I mean, we're looking at a snapshot. I'm curious if you can, if you can sort of project forward and see whether or not there's been any variation or you expect any variation across time. Thanks. Well, on the, on the looking forward piece, I mean, one of the things that I think will be interesting to look at is kind of the more global geopolitics of the thing. You know, Saudi Arabia and Iran have long had a kind of a competition for influence in, in Africa. Um, you know, Saudi has been kind of waxing in strength over the last couple of decades, but Iran kind of precipitated um, after the, the revolution precipitated that competition for influence. I think now when you're seeing kind of these big global shifts in the alliances of, you know, and new players in Africa, I mean, the Russia-Iran kind of Turkey axis versus the Saudi, you know, UAE, is that, am I getting my axes right? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, that, the, the possibility of kind of some kind of renewed competition on kind of uh, political grounds, but to takes the form of religious influences, I think it would be interesting to look at. After the um, killing of the Shia and the imprisonment of Zakzaki in Nigeria, the next day, President Buhari um, got a call from uh, uh, King Salman saying, um, yeah, keep up the good fight. We're with you in the fight against counterterrorism. And he got one from President Rouhani saying, you know, what the heck is going on here? So, uh, you know, and not long after that, the Nigeria joined the Saudi Alliance for Counterterrorism. And so, you, you know, the, the, the possibility of, and even the Al-Qaeda ISIL kind of axis, how that might, how competition might play out in, in proxy ways in Africa. To me, that's a really interesting um, angle to look at, particularly as I think the bigger trend is gonna be continued fracturing of, of, and so increased competition among groups for kind of the, the purer version of Islam or the more fundamental version of Christianity. And that, just to go back to your last point, social media plays a huge role in that in kind of polarizing and fractionalizing, as we've seen in this country too. Does anybody want to address the rural-urban issue? 
Um, usually, I mean, in, in most setups across Africa, um, rural areas don't have major issues to address, especially it's in town where we have the intelligentsia, the elite, where we have many youth disenfranchised, where people voice their grievances, you know, and so it's where religious engagement should really take precedence, where people, especially the youth, many African cities, where you have people have graduated, they have no job, so they get frustrated at the system, and any, any political or maybe religious uh, extremist group can easily prey on them. So in the conversation, these are issues that states need to address. But still, uh, on the influence issue, uh, it's true that uh, the configuration of international system is getting more and more polarized. Uh, we have new people coming on board, Russia, we have the Middle East, we have Turkey. Everybody is looking for space in Africa, and they are trying to get influence one way or the other. And for poor countries where you're able to chip in a bit of money, of course, people will listen to you and the youth. So I think many of those youths are being instrumentalized for religious purposes. But when you're able to engage them, if governments are able really to take care of their basic needs, I think the conflict potential will reduce substantially. Now, depending on maybe the context talking about the, the Sahel belts. I was also wanted to mention uh, something about Senegal. Senegal has been a very peaceful country um, in many ways. But for me, it's not a yardstick we can use. The most important yardstick we can use is countries that had issues and how they navigate the whole process and what they were able to do to achieve peace. And I think those lessons will be very, very helpful for other countries. Ivory Coast is one of them. Uh, it's not. It's still, they still have issues, but at least they were able to address some of the core issues that they face. So for me, it's a country that holds a lot of lessons that we can learn from, and that would be maybe good for the sub-region. Thank you. And a hand over here in the third row. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Lakeisha Harrison, PhD in African Studies with a concentration in religion and a master's in religious studies with a concentration in Africa and African Americans. So one of the questions I'd like to ask is um, if each of you could touch on um, the role of the state with the indigenous traditional religion populations in the countries that you have expertise on because the conversation has um, tended to uh, lean toward Islam or Christianity, which is often the case. But as we know on the continent of Africa, even those who have converted to either Christianity or Africa or, or Islam still practice their traditional indigenous religion, either openly or in secret. And those who um, exclusively practice their traditional religion because they often are marginalized or the minority sometimes run security risk. And does the state 
um, have an obligation to try to find a way to help create safe spaces for those members of the population to continue practicing their religion or those who have converted to not have to merge their uh, traditional and uh, other religious faiths in secret? Father Bartholomew and I were just talking about that yesterday, yes. and I recognized and admitted that, that the question that you just posed was a blind spot for us in yeah. this study. We did focus primarily on Christianity and Islam um, and the fragmentation within those two major religions. We acknowledged the fact that there are these other traditional religions, uh, but we didn't get into any details, so thank you for raising that. Yeah. Um, Please. Thank you for your question. It's a very good question. Um, I, I raised that question with... Uh, uh, Haim, uh, about the importance of traditional African religions. Um, there is a Kenyan scholar called Ali Mazrui who wrote in the early 60s a book about Africans. Africans, a triple heritage. To mean that uh, Africa is a blend of three major traditions, tradition of faith. Christianity, Islam, and then African traditional religions that respectfully I would use this is a term that's right to use. And for my own country, Burkina Faso, where we have a paramount chief called the Moronaba, who has a commanding, I would say, influence. Because the perception in especially many Africans, South Saharan African countries, they may look at Islam and Christianity as foreign religions because they have allegiance to a foreign power. Christianity will look towards Rome. Islam will look towards maybe in the sub-region of Saudi Arabia or maybe uh, Iran. But the religion that has its roots grounded in Africa is trad African traditional religion. Because they believe that they have a local agenda they think and they feel for their people. It's not foreign. And when you engage religion, these are people you need to talk to. And in Burkina Faso, for instance, many people draw their faith from more than one creed. They may be Muslim, but they answer to the paramount chief. They may be Christians, but they answer to the paramount chief. So there is no way you can talk about religion and underplay the position of such a person. And even in the trouble that Burkina Faso faced, everybody were going, almost all the major stakeholders went to the Moronaba. Because at the end of the day, he's respected when he says something, both Muslims and Christians listen. And they believe that they have a tradition related directly to the ancestors. So then when you really debate, you talk about religion, these are people you need to bring on board. They have a commanding influence when it comes to deciding about the future of a country. So then this conversation is very important. How we can recapture those traditional values that are directly related to traditional African religions. So for me, for the particular case of Burkina Faso that I know. Um, the Moronaba, who is a Mosi, we have more than half of the, the population of Burkina Faso, 
that really relate directly to him because they are Mosi people. And on top of that, the whole country, they respect him because when it comes to issues, to address issues, when he says something, they respect what he says. And usually, he's someone with really wisdom. And when he says something, people tend to respect because they know that he, have, he has at heart the good of the people. He doesn't have any foreign agenda because he thinks only about his own people. So this conversation is really for, I mean, looking forward, it's maybe another piece you need to address. <laughs> How to Follow bring that, report. yes, on really the conversation because the future of the continent will depend on that, that uh, we, we should put uh, in the process whatever can really help communities across the continent to be peaceful, to be able to relate to each other and be able to understand each other to be able to move forward. Thank you for your Did you want to say something? So unlike Burkina Faso, in many other parts of the country, though, um, th those structures don't almost exist anymore. Yeah. Right? So traditional paramount chiefs, you find them in certain areas of Africa. In other parts of Africa, you don't find them. And often the traditional paramount chiefs are not religious chiefs. So while they represent a number of set of values, mm -hmm. traditional values, they don't necessarily lead people into prayer, or into incantation, or into kind of that uh, play that advocacy with the higher powers. Mm -hmm. So typically they don't play that role in a lot of places. And then so you're left with the traditional healers, the Ngangas, the Banfumu, and those kind of people depend on what part of Africa you're in. Mm -hmm. Those guys have lost, somewhere they still have powers. In a lot of places, they've lost a lot of their power. Mm -hmm. Either they're marginalized because everybody has moved on to the science now. Now it's about science. It's about the Cartesian world. Not that well because it's not considered Cartesian for a lot of mm -hmm. people. Or a lot of them have turned into some kind of charlatanism. Yeah, they become kind of charlatan, making a back here, a dollar there. So it's a very important um, aspect then to be tapped into. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more, much more diffuse yeah. in a certain way. So it's yeah. a bit about challenging, mm -hmm. depending on what country and what part of the, yeah. uh, And that kind of almost goes to the urban question. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear a lot about urban Africa, rural Africa. You know, sometimes I wonder, what are we talking about? Because there's such a high level of urban migration that everything is almost urban. It's not developed in, in terms of infrastructure. But the rural is kind of disappearing in, in the way that we we'll conceive rural in, in the US or in other parts of, of the Western world. Yeah. Thank you. Can I just add something before? Um, traditional religion is not only doing sacrifices. Um, it's tradition to go where we come from. It's when you go to a village, they will point to you the chief because it represents the, I mean, the society in terms of who you relate to when you go to a modern city. And they are the channels through, through which people can get to each other. It might not be necessarily you know, religion, but these are all as guardians of traditional values. And in that, they still hold a great responsibility in society. So that's what I wanted to add. So thank no, you. Very good. Thank you. Yes, here in the yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, this is Korea. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. 
Thank you very much. This is a great discussion. I'm here with my uh, supervisor from the State Department, uh, Dr. Ruska. And myself, I'm originally from Africa, and I'm really happy to hear this discussion going on. Um, I just want to add a comment and also questions. Uh, basically, challenge you guys by telling you that what we are talking about here is great, but the fundamental issue we have in Africa is economic issue uh, than religions. And I will take a couple examples to illustrate this. First, uh, you mentioned the case of Cote d'Ivoire. So there's some sort of diversity in the religions there. You have one third Muslim, one third Catholics, and one third, you know, they have their own religions. So, so far the country has done pretty well, uh, except when there was a crisis, you know, they tend to refer to religions as a main, uh, as an issue. However, what's very important is we should allow this uh, diversity, and what the state should be doing is basically to be some sort of benevolent in terms of being able to allocate resources, mm -hmm. so to uh, create development mm -hmm. in all parts of the countries, regardless of whether Muslims exist there or Christians exist there and so on and so forth. Because the state doesn't have that ability you know, to allocate the resources to get that growth, economic growth, and then uh, share it with the people, then they become a little bit, uh, see themselves as not part of the society. And it's easier to basically you know, bring religion issues, and, and then you, know, you create an environment where basically you know, they, they, are, they are outside, they see themselves as outsiders, and then they start forming groups like rebellions, and as you can see it in the case of Burkina Faso or the case of Nigeria. So if money funds economic growth can take place in these different areas, I think it will be difficult for religious folks to come in and try to, um, to, to bring seen right now. So in conclusions, I think what's very important is to make sure that resources are allocated in such a way that everybody is benefiting uh, from the economic growth and not seeing people as being uh, outsiders. Uh, and that's very important. And it, it goes beyond religions, it goes beyond how the state can bring that higher vision uh, you know, for, for, for the people of, uh, of each country. Thank you. I agree. Perfectly. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely agree. The, the uh, problem yeah. is that sometimes there's a structural problem of, yeah. say, Bamako investing in northern Mali because it's got 10% of the population. It doesn't bring a whole lot in terms of foreign exchange. It's not a big part of the economy. And the votes are with the population in the south. So there's almost a structural disincentive to invest in those peripheral areas. Um, often. And I mean, it really takes kind of the self-interest well understood to say, gosh, we need to invest in those peripheral areas or find ways to connect them with the, with the rest of the country economically, through infrastructure, what have you. Um, but I mean, you see that whether it's in northeast Nigeria, where people mostly look across to Lake Chad or you know, to Niger and, and Chad. Mali looks to Algeria or to Niger or other parts. Um, so, you know, it, it, takes, it takes an active will and foresight, and it may not be democratically popular, in fact, to say, okay, we're going to invest a whole lot of money in the north, and the people in Bamako or the south are saying, well, we're where the population is. Um, so why disproportionate? Do you keep paying off the Tuareg kind of thing? I mean, you, get, you hear those kind of grumbles. So I totally agree that the fix is there. That's why I do think 
kind of education systems and things that at least begin to equalize the opportunity of people to participate in the economy are really important. Um, but you know, in an ideal world, yeah, the distribution of wealth would be much more even. Intisar, you just got back from Tunisia and, and one of the more marginalized areas of Tunisia. How do you think about that question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's um, it's a really important point and one that you also highlight in, in the book the question that you know you, you often have this religious heavy-handed religious intervention or some kind of religious intervention that's sort of happening in a vacuum that's not being supplemented by the right economic policy by the right sort of inclusive um, you know uh, policies that can ensure as much development for as many uh, parts of the population as possible. And I think, I mean, for in Morocco, you see that as, you see that as sort of a, there was a, it's a very vivid in, in, in the way that the population sees how the monarchy is controlling the religious space, right? So on the one hand, they're trying to sort of promote this idea of a pious citizen, a good citizen, a moral citizen. On the other hand, they're cracking down on people's basic freedoms. There are real you know, issues with unemployment. Um, Moroccan youth are really disenfranchised. They, they basically want to leave. They want immediate political change. And just kind of an anecdote to this, I, um, I was in Morocco recently also, and I was having lunch with my family on Friday. And I looked to one of my 16-year-old cousins. They had just come back from the mosque. And I said, well, how, was the, how was the sermon? My cousin is 16 year old. He's a very big fan of Fortnite, the video game. Oh, and he, he basically looked to me and said, he's like, well, the imam was just basically saying how terrible video games were and how, how bad we were for playing them. And at the same time as this sermon took place, there had been a protracted teacher's protest that was keeping kids outside of school for months on end. So it just, it, not only does it sound tone deaf, it completely rejects the way that these young people live. I mean, for better or worse, video games, social media, that's all part of their experience. But rather than engaging with them on that, they, they reject it. So I just want to add to that. I mean, the, you know, we're talking about specific countries here in terms of the challenges that they face, the lack of development, economic investment, the marginalization, the youth challenges. We're talking about that in the context of Africa, but I don't think any of these issues, any of these challenges that any of the countries that we <coughs> mentioned today are unique in any way to those countries or to the African continent. These are challenges that just about every society in the world is facing today, including in our own country in terms of lack of development, marginalization, youth unemployment, uh, hopelessness, indignity. Those are issues that we find here today as well. So it's important to keep that context in mind when we are analyzing uh, Africa or North Africa, the Maghreb. I think we have time for one very quick last question. Uh, yes, please, right here. Uh, Fatima Taki from the District of Columbia National Guard International Affairs. I, we have a partnership with Burkina Faso, and, um, but I don't have a question for Burkina Faso. I do have a question about uh, in the same line of thought as Dr. Harris. Um, about the use of uh, religions by state, but this time not the indigenous, the uh, Judaism, um, specifically in North Africa and probably in East Africa. Um, it's a religion that has been kind of reached out uh, for, for political region recently. I would like to see if you have any thoughts about that. Thank you. I, 
have not particularly looked at that issue. I've looked at kind of Israel making outreach to African states, but not I, the question. I mean, I can tackle that. Um, <laughs> okay, good. I, I think there's been a, a growing awareness um, in many of these countries, in particular in North Africa, across North Africa, not focused on any one country, of uh, their, their Jewish heritage and the role that the Jews played uh, culturally, historically, and that goes back centuries. You know, two millennia uh, in, in the North African context where many of the indigenous Amazigh tribes uh, were both Jewish and Christian uh, and played a uh, important role in the cultural, linguistic development uh, of, of those countries, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt uh, as well. And I think more and more countries in North Africa in particular are willing to recognize that. Morocco in particular has even recognized their Jewish heritage in their 2011 constitution, which I think is a very uh, bold and brave uh, move that shows a real self-confidence uh, in, in terms of recognizing the diversity of their past. And I think that willingness to recognize the diversity is actually a source of strength moving forward. And I think Ethiopia. Please. Ethiopia is another country uh, where we, especially the northern part, many people identify themselves you know, with the Jewish heritage, and many have gone to Israel. In Kenya, we have not, but not a big group, but basically in Ethiopia, many, many people will really feel the of Jewish heritage, and many travel to Israel. Probably you. Intisar, yeah. yeah, you no, get the last word. I just wanted to add um, just kind of a little detail. Also, Morocco recently uh, was um, had decided to allow the local Jewish population to have um, some sort of religious, uh, supreme religious representation. I don't know if you saw that. That was, I think, maybe earlier this year or last year. And I think um, uh, kind of a, another parallel to that is also the way that you see uh, not necessarily just uh, Judaism or, you know, the question of indigenous religions doesn't really apply to North Africa, but you sort of see this little bit of a revival of more traditional interpretations of Islam in North Africa being kind of um, almost being like uh, in vogue again. You know, the Zawiyas are not, uh, the, the people are sort of embracing their more uh, Sufi heritage and they're encouraged to do that because that's part of this uh, effort to push a more tolerant um, you know, view and, and practice of Islam in Morocco. Thank you. So this has been a wonderful discussion. It's, a, it's a, really a culmination of this project. And I'm just honored to have been able to work on this, this project and edit this volume. I want to thank everyone who had a hand in, in this event and coordinating this event, the AV people, uh, the other people who worked on logistics. I want to thank the audience and especially thank our speakers uh, and panelists, Intisar, Bartholomew, Vemba, and Jennifer. Thank you so much for being part of this. You really added uh, so much insight and uh, wisdom. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.